Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. Each week, our pastors share a message from the scriptures to glorify God through the equipping, encouraging, and building up the fellowship to grow in Christ and make disciples. This week, Pastor Dylan Hill will introduce the book of Joshua, where we will see the Lord demonstrate that he is indeed holy and faithful. in your Bibles to the book of Joshua today. Uh, we're not going to cover any particular text in Joshua, but we do want to read the first couple of lines to kind of set up where we're at in the history of the Old Testament. And then we're going to do something called an introduction today. It's really important as we enter into any time of study in a new book of the Bible that we take time to understand sort of the background for that book before we get into it. And so today we're going to begin by looking at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, just as kind of a setup, and then we're going to talk about uh, the background and context for this book today. So Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we enter into a time of study in His Word. Lord, give you thanks for this, your Word that you have delivered faithfully by the hand of your prophet, and preserved for us to this day that we might study the Word of our God and know the God of the Word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your Word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction. Guide us into the truth and help us to respond in faithful obedience to you that we might be conformed to the image of God in Christ to make your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. We pray, Lord, that during this time, you would speak to your people that I wouldn't speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak that your people would be built up, equipped, and encouraged to make your name known. And ultimately, above all of it, that your name would be honored and glorified above all things. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. So I'm sure like a lot of you, uh, you could probably tell me your story of where you were and your experience of September 11th, 2001. Um, I was at college at the time. I was living in a sort of a two-story apartment on campus, and I remember getting up. I had an early class um, that morning, and so I came downstairs. I was heading out. My uh, roommate was having breakfast watching the news, and he told me that, hey, a plane had crashed in one of the World Trade Center towers, and I looked on the TV to see what he was watching, and Somehow it just didn't click. It, it didn't. The proportions of everything just didn't look right to me, and so I thought maybe some prop plane, Learjet, had gone off course and just by pure happenstance had crashed into that building. And so you know it was it was tragic, and and I was sad to hear that. Um, and so I packed up my things, talked with him briefly, and then I had to head off to class. And it was about a fifteen twenty minute walk across campus to get to the music building from where I was, get into the building, go upstairs to my class, sit down, waiting for the teacher to arrive. 
And then the teacher walks in. And then he kind of delivers us the news of what's going on. Because by the time I'd gotten to class, the second plane had hit the other tower. And the reality of what was actually happening was setting in. And as I reflect back on that particular event, what I realized is that my casual glance on the way out in the morning just didn't suffice to really grasp the gravity of what was going on in that situation. But by the time I got to the music building and then later finished that class and went to the theater where they were broadcasting the news there, really taking the time to soak in the gravity of the situation, my response was completely different. Uh, the, the weight of the situation was massive. And the reality is that we can have that sort of experience with the Lord as well, that we get these casual glances at the Lord that really don't sink in the gravity of who He is. And we can begin to take Him less seriously than we should, not accept the realities of who He is. And and that can result in us not relating to Him in the way we should, seeing Him the way we should. But when we reject these casual glances at the Lord and truly see Him for what He is and who He is, the gravity of who He is will begin to have a very distinct effect on us. And so we're going to see, as with our main idea today, that the holy and faithful God we serve expects faithful obedience from the people whom He loves and has redeemed. And if this is the case, then we need to take seriously the holiness of that God and respond with an obedience that demonstrates our faith in Him and who He is and our understanding of who He is. And that's essentially what Joshua is all about. It's teaching the people of God to understand and respect the gravity of who He is and His holiness and His faithfulness. And so as we go through this book, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to not take a casual glance at God, but to take a long, hard look at who He is through the eyes of the events that took place as recorded in the book of Joshua. So this week, we're going to be doing sort of what we call formal introduction. It's just sort of the background and context for the book of Joshua. And then next week, we're actually going to do another little bit of introduction. But that one's going to be a little more focused on some of the more difficult issues that we have to deal with in the book of Joshua that are really worth addressing very, very specifically in its own introduction that as we get into the book, we're all on the same page with some of those difficult issues. Uh, so we'll pick that up next week. This week, a little more general, a little broader. But the idea today is to provide us with some context. And that's really why we do introductions to the books of the Bible, is to provide us with context. If you don't establish the context, you're going to read the text through the lens of your own context. You're going to try to understand from your own perspective, your own position, I always love looking at uh, Renaissance paintings of biblical scenes. It always kind of cracks me up because they're always wearing Renaissance-style clothing. You know, it's all these ancient Judeans and Romans wearing, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th century Italian clothing. Um, so the problem is we can read the Bible that way a lot of times where we read the Scriptures and we do it through the eyes of our own context and our own position. But the more you know about the context, the more you will understand the meaning of the text. And increasingly over time, just learning more and more and more about the context, you will see that over time. You learn more about the history, the language, the geography, the history, the background for the writing. And these help you to understand why it is 
that you see the things you see in the text, and therefore you can understand it better. And so introductions are simply there to help us establish a firm understanding of the context of a book. So that's where we're going to be going today is really talking the context. Now, anytime we start a new book of the Bible, I think it's really important for us to kind of walk back through the timeline of history leading up to the book that we're actually studying. So we're going to look at the history first leading up to this, but we're going to do it really fast and really quick. So if you work through the chronological issues in the Old Testament, you kind of get a timeline that looks like this. So somewhere around 5339 B.C., or if you just want to round it off, 5340 B.C., um, Adam is created. That's about where we get that, okay, based upon how long he lived and the other chronologies, that's about when he's created. Then in the year 3683, Noah is born, and then 600 years later, the flood happens in 3083 B.C., then after that, in about 2830 B.C., the Tower of Babel incident happens, and then all the peoples are dispersed into the nations. At that time, people are particularly dispersed into, my, my whole theory is they're dispersed into all these river valley areas, Egypt with the Nile and in Mesopotamia with the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and all these cities start being built, one of which is the city of Ur. And over time, lots of people populate there, and one family that is there is the family of Terah, whose son is Abraham. And Abraham is born about the year 1951 B.C. Um, his family eventually moves out of southern Mesopotamia into much further northern area called Haran, which is at the heads of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers further up north. And they remain there until Terah dies. And at that time, somewhere around 1876, Abraham is called out of Haran into Canaan and he receives this covenant promise from the Lord about what's going to happen with his descendants. And so the Lord makes this promise that they'll enter into that land, they'll take possession of it. This is really important for the book of Joshua because this is when the initial promise is made. And in the book of Joshua, we're going to see the first culminating event for that promise to take place. We're also going to see a lot of other culminations of promises that are made um, that we'll talk about a little more next week. But this is a big thing for the book of Joshua is to see that this covenant is given and then it is being fulfilled in the days of Joshua, that they're going to come in and take over possession of this land that the Lord has promised them. In about the year 1851 B.C., Isaac is born. 1791, Jacob is born. About 91 years later, in 1700, Joseph was born. And then about the year 1661, Israel enters into Egypt. Now, at this point, remember, they're not in slavery yet. They're entering in there because Joseph has gone ahead of them has become very high up in the Egyptian government and has made a way for Israel to come in and receive safety in the midst of a massive famine that has taken place in their lands where plenty is available to them in the land of Egypt. However, over time, the Israelites are enslaved while they're there, and in about 1526, Moses is born under that slavery in Egypt. He flees at about the year, uh, about his age of 40, he flees into uh, Midian where he seeks safety because he has actually murdered an Egyptian. And so he seeks out refuge in Midian in about the year 1486. And then about 40 years later, when he's 80, he gets called out to go back to Israel and in Egypt and to lead them in the Exodus out of Egypt. And ideally at that point, it was to lead them directly into the promised land. But if you go back to the book of Numbers, you'll remember Moses sent spies into the land. And he sent 12 of them. And when they came back, 10 of them 
were completely panicking about what they found there. There's no way they can go into the land and take it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, no, 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 the Lord is with us. We're going to go in and take this. Well, because of this bad report, the people of the nation panic. And because they panic and reject the Lord's work in them to take over the land, the Lord disciplines them and says this entire generation is going to pass away in the wilderness over the course of the next 40 years before I allow you to go into the land. At that point, they say, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll, never mind, we'll go into the land. And so they go and try to take the land, and they're utterly defeated and come crying back and in pain and loss because they've been utterly defeated. And so they end up having to play out their 40 years in the wilderness until that generation is completely gone. Then we come to 1406. Joshua takes over for Moses and takes this next generation from the wilderness into the promised land that, that uh, Abraham had been promised all the way back in the 1800s B.C. And so that's where we land historically with the book of Joshua. That's where we are in the history here. So when was the book of Joshua written? Well, there's several uh, comments made in the book of Joshua that help us realize that it can't be written too far out, um, but it obviously is happening far, far enough out for several things to happen. First of all, we see at the end of the book of Joshua that Joshua dies. Um, he did not record his own death. Okay, So this obviously is, is a section that at least was written after he died. Now, it's always possible that the bulk of the book of Joshua was written prior to his death, but that chapter 24 was written by somebody else and added on to it to create the complete book itself. But we do know from comments made in Joshua 6.25, 13.13, and 15.63 that this book was written fairly soon after the events that occurred. So um, there's a mention of, the, of Rahab and her family in 625 still living in the land um, at the time of the writing of the book. There's other comments that indicate that the conquest had not been fully complete, which would mean it would limit it back to pretty soon after the events of Joshua, something we don't see happen until the days of David when the full extent of the land is taken. Um, but there's other little details in these verses that show us that this clearly was written fairly soon after the events that actually took place. Now, the reason I have somewhere between 1401 and 1325 B.C. is because it is possible that this was written, you know, a good deal out, but still pretty close to the events that happened. Now, the problem this leaves us with is that the book of Joshua is actually anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. However, given the fact that it was written fairly soon after the events that occurred, there are three possible guesses. First of all, we can say Joshua potentially wrote the bulk of the book up through at least chapter 23, and that somebody else added chapter 24, recording his death later on to create the entirety of the book that we have today. It's also possible that someone like Caleb wrote the whole book after Joshua died to record all the events that had taken place, because Caleb does outlive Joshua. Um, it's also possible that Phineas, who's the high priest, who's the grandson of Aaron, who takes over uh, under Joshua later on as the high priest actually wrote the whole book itself to record those events. But the reality is the book itself, if you read through it, never indicates who the actual author is. And we have to be very, very careful because when we read titles for books in the Bible, we can't just assume that because the title is Joshua that Joshua wrote it um, because we know that this is not the case for other books as well. Just because it has the author's name doesn't mean that that, or just because it has, has the name at the title um, doesn't mean that the name of that person is the one who wrote it. 
So these are probably the best guesses for who wrote it. Um, I think these are all have legitimate arguments behind them. Um, but that's generally who we're looking to and the time period we're looking at. So where was it written? They're already in the land. And so it's very likely that this is written somewhere in Israel, um, somewhere in the promised land after the, con the initial conquest. Again, if it was written pretty quickly after the events that happened, then they're already in the land. And so it's probably written somewhere in that region. And so to whom was it written? It was written for the nation of Israel. It was for them to see, look, here's what the Lord has done. Now, to this point, they already have the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So they've seen all these promises made, all these uh, expectations laid out in Torah, and now they have this book that says, look, see how it's played out. So this is written to them. Now, for what purpose? Well, ultimately, it's to declare to Israel that Yahweh is holy and faithful and expects faithful obedience from His covenant people. Now, we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but one of the things we're going to see is that he has made all these promises of blessing upon them, but the contingency on that was that the people actually obey and do what he's called them to do. Because if they don't, he would ultimately curse them and kick them out of the land, just like the people who were living there at the time had lived wickedly and were being kicked out of the land. And so the whole purpose was to help them see, look, he's made all these promises and he's laid out his expectations See how this has played out as we've come into the land. That lays the groundwork for us living here from now on. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight to see what actually took place and the disobedience and rebellion that happened even after the book of Joshua. But at least for Joshua's time, this was the purpose of writing this book, was to lay out the character of God so that they would see clearly and understand who he is and what he expected. So to give you a little bit of an outline for the book of Joshua, and this is kind of the, the flow that we're going to take, um, and actually, if you look out in the hallway, you'll see that we have the poster layout there for you to kind of follow through as we go from week to week. But chapters 1 through 5 is essentially the setup. Joshua taking over leadership of Israel, making preparations to come into the land. Chapters 6 through 12 is really a narrative of the total conquest that was accomplished during the days of Joshua. Now remember, they did not conquer the entirety of the land they were supposed to during the days of Joshua. There was still more work to be done by the time Joshua was uh, passing on. But this at least lays out in Joshua's day how much of that conquest was actually accomplished. Then in chapters 13 through 22, yes, this can be one of those hard sections of the Bible when you're reading through it in your year-long Bible reading process where you get into the division of the land. And it, it can get difficult because on top of that, it's a ton of names to places that mean nothing to us because A, it's in Hebrew, and maybe even in the Canaanite languages. B, um, some of those places don't even exist anymore. Uh, and, and they just, geographically, we have no idea where they're at. I'm hoping that when we go through that section, I'm actually going to put the maps up here and dot the locations so you'll actually be able to see how they're outlining the division of the land um, because there's some great maps out there that people have done to help us do that. So that's what we're going to talk about in 13 through 22. But the reason why that section is important and you should look at it as not boring is that is the tangible playing out of the faithfulness of God to his people. It's a, look, see, the land is being given, just like he promised. And then in chapter 23 through 24, we get Joshua's final words, and then, of course, the narrative of his death as well, sort of his commission to the people as they move on. All right, so ultimately, why do you care? So the other, you know, ultimately, this is pretty academic, okay? Because here's the reality. You know you got that friend who has a bunch of useless knowledge, um, and, I, I, and some of y'all know me well enough to know I am probably that friend to you. 
that has a bunch of useless knowledge that will win the Trivial Pursuit games and that sort of stuff. You know, the kind of person who goes on who wants to be a millionaire, and I, I, don't get me wrong, I probably wouldn't get the million-dollar question, but, um, but probably could get up there a ways because of just useless knowledge. Well, a lot of this information can be pretty useless if we don't understand the effect it actually has on context. So, why do you care? So, first of all, you need to understand that every week as we go through every passage, just like normal, I'm going to provide you context particular to that passage. So we'll have time to talk about that specifically when we get to each passage, but this week we're talking very, very broadly. So first of all, you need to understand this. This people had waited a very long time. For 400 years they had waited to enter into this promised land. Moses, or, uh, Paul points out in Galatians that between the time of them entering into the land and them receiving the covenant, you've got a massive amount of time going on here for a people almost half a millennium of waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, and now it's finally happened. They've waited. They've been through so much. They've been through sojourning in Canaan. They've been through slavery in Egypt. They've been through an exodus. They've been through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, waiting and waiting and waiting. And one of the things that I've learned in doing a lot of uh, reading in, in other literature and other stories that people tell is this... When your culture starts to just be based around waiting and then suddenly the waiting is over, that is a massive change for a people. And even we look at Israel today when their whole religion and culture is based around waiting. And we can see that even when Jesus comes himself. They'd spent thousands of years waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come. And then he comes and it almost is too good to be true to the point where they just can't handle it. And so it's a big thing for this people to live in this culture, in this context for so long of just waiting. And suddenly it's here. And that has an effect on a people. But we also need to understand that the covenant law, in, in terms of its relationship to being in the land, is now in effect. They are entering into the land. Now, it's not that the law didn't apply to them while they were in the wilderness, but now it has a very particular meaning. Because if they don't obey, if they do not keep the commandments, if they do not maintain their covenant faithfulness, they will be punished by having their whole country taken into captivity. And this was mentioned in Deuteronomy very, very clearly to them before they even entered into the promised land. And so everything that they had been told up to this point, it's game time. It is go time. And I remember the first time I really had a concerted time reading from Genesis through Deuteronomy, seeing how things fell apart even in the wilderness over and over again. And then suddenly Joshua just felt like a good restart point. You just start it with an optimism, like, oh, yeah, okay, we, we've had all this time to learn. Now we're entering into the land, and it's go time, and we're going to do this right. And then after the very first city falls, they have a disobedience problem. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. And it's very depressing. And so to understand that anticipation, that sense of reset, and then to suddenly have that hit right off the bat, that's the kind of context you need to understand for what they're dealing with and how they're living their lives in their own context, having waited so long, and then to experience that as they come into the land. And so as we go through this book, that's where this people is at as they are learning to understand 
again the holiness and faithfulness of God and how that's going to play out in the context with, with which we're pretty unfamiliar. So these are the, this is why this context is so important. Okay, so just mechanically speaking, any questions with sort of just the basic background material and context for this book? Yes, Daniel. Context means anything that's going on around something that helps you understand why that thing happened. Okay? Yes, James. Um, it par- okay, so the question is, the promised land, is it the same as where they're at in today as far as the land that they control? So the land that they were actually promised actually runs all the way from the Euphrates River all the way down to Egyptian territory. That's the total promised area. And that land they actually will end up taking during the days of David. So they don't, they're not quite there yet. Um, the land that they had, that Israel, the nation today has, is not nearly that extensive there's still a lot of land there that they don't have there's land that we'll actually see pretty early on in the text um, there were actually three tribes that wanted to actually stay on the east side of the jordan that land they absolutely do not have that's part of jordan and part of um help me out with my geography is that part of iraq syria syria and jordan yeah syria and jordan over there so um so no there that the land that is currently called israel over there doesn't cover the totality of that. Although, by the end of the book of Joshua, the amount of land they, they have is similar in the amount of territory that they have today. It's not quite, so. Yeah, good question. Anything else? Yes, leave. You kidding? Okay, good deal. All right, so... That's why we care. That's why we care about the context, because we need to understand... Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is one of these things that's, that is really, really hard for us to understand is when you're having to wait. I mean, we understand it in our own context because we're sitting here waiting for the Lord to return. Um, there, and, and we understand how that waiting forms the way we think, the way we behave, the way we do things. And I would dare say when he finally does come, the radical effect that's going to have on us all because even now we can't imagine the, the tremendousness of his return um and it is it's very exciting yeah what's hard is and i see this especially with modern jewish culture is when now the culture has been formulated around waiting rather than formulated around with the thing that you're actually waiting for and so um i don't know that that's the case for this generation that we're talking about right now because it was a lot closer to them. I mean, it's, it's a little more tangible. Um, but I certainly know that for Jewish culture today, having rejected Christ, now this whole culture is just based around waiting rather than being based around the thing you are waiting for, which I would hope would be the case for us in Christ, that we're, that we're not so much basing things around waiting for Jesus to return, but rather basing it on Jesus himself. So, 
But yeah. 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 And so we continue to wait. But we are excited. We're excited about what we're waiting for and who we're waiting for. So we need to talk about the gravity of the Lord that we're dealing with here because this is really going to get down to the, the real core of the book of Joshua. Um, you can get out online and you can start looking for explanations of what the book of Joshua is about. And, you know, as I was getting ready for this, you'll see things like, well, it's about land. That's the main theme of Joshua. Or it's about Joshua taking over leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But that continues to miss the point that the main focus of all the scriptures is God himself. And so anytime we're looking to see what the main idea of any book is, it's always ultimately going to come back to the Lord. And so when we look at the book of Joshua, we're thinking, okay, what is it that the book of Joshua is trying to teach us about the Lord and then our response to him. So he's got to come first. So the question is, who is this Lord that the book of Joshua is trying to focus in on? Well, first aspect here is that he is holy. Now, I'm going to read this, this section of Exodus twice because it has both aspects in it. And this is important because this is something Israel was told long before Joshua is leading them into the land. So Moses is receiving the tablets in Exodus chapter 34, and the Lord passes before him, and this declaration is made. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. We're going to come back to that one. Keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But this is where we're going to park here for just a moment with the, with the holiness of God. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, he takes sin seriously because he is holy, because he is other, because he is righteous. And so as we begin to look at the book of Joshua, what we're going to see time and time again is this holy God that takes sin seriously. If we were to go to the book of Isaiah and see Isaiah's response when confronted by the Lord... We read in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 7, yes. In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, those are angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a, for, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. This is the terror that he was struck with because of the holiness of of God. And by the way, in Hebrew literature, when you say something is described as, oh, it's blue, then it's blue. If you say it's blue, blue, then it's really blue. But if you say it's blue, 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 it's ridiculously blue. It is the bluest of blue. Okay? So in Hebrew literature, when he says holy, 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 
It's to demonstrate the extremeness of his holiness. And so the reality is that we're going to see a God who is to be feared. We don't like this term because we're told not to be afraid in the scriptures, but there is one thing we're told to be afraid of, and that is God. He is to be feared. He is to be revered. I've heard this described in English. Um, It's hard because we don't really have a good English equivalent to describe this. It's sort of this, we can approach the throne boldly because of Christ, but there's still a respect we're supposed to have there, but respect doesn't quite do it. Uh, the phrase I've heard used that I think is helpful is reverential awe. That there, there is a seriousness to be taken with the Lord. And that's where I would, I would say next, we need to take sin seriously. Because if we're going to take Him seriously and fear the Lord as we should, then we have to take sin seriously as well because of its difference from Him. And if He is so extremely holy, then sin is so extremely bad relative to Him. And we also need to understand, especially from what we see in Exodus, that he will execute justice. And we're going to see this in Joshua, that he takes sin seriously so much that he will not let it pass. But this ultimately leads us to the gospel, that this is why Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God and die, is because he takes sin seriously. And if he is going to save you and I, sinners that we are, if he is going to deal with our sin in justice and yet bring us into his kingdom because he loves us, then something still has to die. Something still has to pay for sin. And that was Christ himself. And that's why he suffers on the cross. He suffers the wrath of God in our place. Is dead, is buried, is raised again the newness of life because he was an innocent sacrifice in our place. And so this ultimately points forward to the Jesus who delivers. We're going to see even more comparisons here in a little bit. But this is why Jesus had to die. Now again, I go back to Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And I want to read this description to you again. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So he does take sin seriously, but he provides forgiveness and a way through. In Galatians, and I love this comment in Galatians because it really sees the fulfillment of his promises. Paul writes, chapter 3, verses um, in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, if we are in Christ, we are reaping the benefits of the promises made all the way back to Abraham and are being fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And so we see a God who is faithful, and that means that he makes and fulfills promises. Uh, the word that we often use, and I think we, in, in our circles, we've used this for wrongly for a long time, is the word righteous. And what righteous means, we often think it means good. And just generically, it means good. Righteous means that I am doing what is in keeping with what I said I would do, or in keeping with what I am. And so God proves himself righteous by keeping his promises. He is shown to be in the right is essentially what righteousness means. Uh, we get our phrase is justification from this. Justification has a similar idea. You're declared to be in the right. 
That's what that terminology means. And so relative to his faithfulness, this means that he does what he said he will do and he is what he says he is. He's shown to be in the right relative to his promises. He cares for his people. We're going to see this over and over again in the book of Joshua, that there are insurmountable odds against them. And he steps in for them and cares for them. He provides for them and blesses them. And this goes to the next point. He defends his people. We're going to see over and over again the hostility. At first, there's panic in Canaan and a defensiveness when Israel comes to take over. Then we're going to see an actual organized military assault on the nation, and God intervenes, and he cares for his people. Against all the odds, he steps in and defends them. And here's the reality. When it comes to our sin, it is overwhelmingly against us. It overwhelmingly declares we are guilty and deserving of the wrath of God. And yet God steps in, in Christ, and provides a way and a defense for his people. Jesus steps in and becomes that way through his death, burial, and resurrection and a defense against the enemy. And it ultimately takes on the wrath of God so that we do not have to suffer the wrath of God. Now, we're going to see even further examples of the connection uh, between Jesus and the things that happen in the book of Joshua. Anytime you see a crossing of waters or any, any water imagery in the Old Testament, I mean, it is literal. The, Jordan was, the, the Red Sea is parted and crossed. The Jordan, we'll see, will actually be stopped up so Israel can cross as well. Um, but that imagery in their minds has to do with chaos and death. The sea is a scary place in the perceptions of these people. We, kinda, we, we have a respect for the sea and know you've got to take care while you're out there. To them, it's, it's terrifying. It is the place of chaos, the abyss, death, destruction, and darkness. And yet the Lord leads them through it. And so in a very similar way, Jesus crosses that for us. He crosses the, the barrier of death and chaos and darkness for us and leads us through that. We're going to see wicked inhabitants in the land who oppose God and his people destroyed. Now, I'm going to talk about this over and over again. The Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he will execute justice on them as he needs to. And just in a similar way as God defended his people from the enemies in the land, so the Lord defends us from our enemy, the evil one. We see in the Gospels Jesus casting out the enemy, taking over power from the enemy so that the nations would not be deceived and so the Gospel could go out. And so we see him defending and overthrowing the enemy, Satan. We see a Lord who commands obedience of the nation in keeping with his covenant law. We're going to see Jesus do the same thing in the Gospels where he says, keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In a similar way, Joshua and the people of Israel are told, if you're going to be blessed, if you love the Lord, then you need to keep the commandments as well. We're going to see in the book of Joshua the Lord leading the people into the land. And we're going to see in the Gospels Jesus leading his people into the kingdom. And we're going to ultimately see that in the book of Revelation where the Lord finally leads his people into his kingdom. And we're going to see the Lord 
calling upon a kingdom to be a kingdom of priests. And we talked about this a little bit when we did our study in 1 Peter, but when we talk about priests, the idea of the priesthood was not simply to just conduct rituals. It was to represent the Lord before a people. And so here he's calling upon Israel to be a kingdom of priests. He actually calls upon them to do this in the book of Exodus, that they are to represent the Lord to the nations. In a similar way, the Lord Jesus calls us to be a kingdom of priests, to represent him before the nations, to go and tell. Now, the thing in Israel is, you're going to see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the command was, come and see. Israel was calling the nations to come to Israel to see that the Lord is good, to see who the Lord is. But now that Jesus has come and has commanded us and sent us out in his commission, the command is no longer come and see. The command is go and tell. Go to the nations and tell them what the Lord has done. And so with all this said, our response needs to be to take seriously the gravity of who the Lord is and how we should respond to Him. To not take a casual glance at who He is, but take a long, hard look at who He is and what He expects in faithful obedience from us. And we're going to see this play out over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. I don't know if any of you all have had an opportunity to step inside a courtroom. I remember I was telling someone this week that when I worked for uh, the bank here in Pampa one summer for my mom, basically was me working the safety deposit boxes, and that was about all they trusted me with. Um, I, I obviously, they didn't want to trust me with the bank's money. I can't imagine why. Um, but I remember I used to, at lunch, I'd go home and watch uh, a law drama at lunch, because this channel had an episode on at lunch. Um, I'd come home in the afternoon and watch the 6 o'clock episode of that same show, and then at night, about 10 o'clock, I'd watch the 10 o'clock episode of that show, and and so I was super interested in, in law at the time and, and possibly doing that. But there's a big difference between watching a law show and then having to be in court. There, there's a gravity of actually being in that room that takes over once you step in. For any of you who have either done jury duty or, unfortunately, having to be one of the ones who's actually either a defendant or a, um, what's the other person? Plaintiff, thank you, plaintiff. Um, in court, you know there's a gravity there to being in that room. And so there's a big difference between just having your casual glance at something and then being present in that thing and experiencing the gravity of that situation. And the same is the case for our relationship with the Lord. These casual glances are not going to cut it. It's taking a long, hard look at who he is. And so again, as we look at the book of Joshua, we're going to see his holiness and his holiness calls for obedience. It calls for taking our sin seriously. It calls for taking His character seriously. And it calls for taking His means of salvation seriously. But we're also going to see time again His faithfulness. And that faithfulness calls for trust. It's one of the things that I've mentioned before. The Bible is unlike so many other holy books in the world because so much of it is a story. Yeah, there are definitely sections where you have lists of laws that are given, by all means, but so much of it is story. Why is that? Because it is a testimony to who God is, what He is about, 
how he operates, what he does. And then from that point, we could say, if that is who he is, if that's how he acts, if that's how he feels about us, then I can trust that moving forward, that's how he's going to be from now on. And so if he's demonstrated faithfulness in the past and loving kindness toward us in the past and has said that this is what he's like, he's a promise keeper, faithful in those promises, then we can expect that as we go forward, he is worthy of our trust and faith. And so we're going to be called over and over again in the book of Joshua to trust in his faithfulness because he's demonstrated it over and again in his word and the testimony of who he is. So again, we need to take seriously the gravity of who he is and how we should respond to him. Now, I am speaking very broadly today because, again, this is an introduction, but we're going to get into the thick of it as we get in chapter by chapter through the book of Joshua about what this looks like. But as for right now, any questions at this point? Yes, sir. It is. I'm excited about it. I got to read through it again this last week. Um, it, it's just an exciting, exciting look at who God is. And again, very holy, very much to be taken seriously, but just seeing his faithfulness play out in this very significant way after centuries of having made a promise to them and then seeing that finally come to fruition. It's pretty amazing. Yes, Daniel. Significant means something's very important. Yeah. So again, our main idea for today was this, that the holy and faithful God we serve expects obedience from the people whom he loves and has redeemed. And so as we go to the table today, we need to take some time to seriously consider the times that we have not taken him seriously, that we have not genuinely grasped the gravity of his holiness, the gravity of what it means to fear him, and also we need to take seriously the times when we have doubted Him, when we have doubted His faithfulness, when we have doubted whether or not we can trust in Him. And we need to be bold to confess this, repent of it, and seek His forgiveness. But in that, we also need to take this time to celebrate what He has done through the Lord Jesus to make that possible. That He has actually taken sin so seriously as to give His Son so that we wouldn't have to suffer His wrath. And we celebrate that at this table and give thanks. And we need to seek His grace to live in fear and awe of who He is and to trust in His faithfulness. So if those who are helping would come forward, we go again to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, the, uh, Excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pray. 
Lord, we do give you thanks and praise for what you have accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We confess to you the times that we have not feared you and taken seriously the gravity of who you are, of how seriously you take sin, and that you will execute justice, Lord. And we ask for forgiveness and confess to you the times when we have doubted you and not seen you as one that can be trusted. We repent of these things, Lord, and seek your forgiveness. But Lord, we rejoice and give you thanks that you have given the Lord Jesus so that your holiness, so that your justice would be satisfied and that we might indeed at the same time live because of your faithfulness and your care over your people. We give you thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus. And so we come to this table, Lord, to celebrate and to praise your awesome name for what you have done through our King. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Faith Pampa podcast. We hope that this message was an encouragement to you. For more information on Faith Bible Church, please visit www.faithpampa.org.